Our text is in Ephesians. Ephesians 1. Let's hear God's word. I'll read from verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding gratefulness, greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would have your Holy Spirit to apply it to our minds, to have it penetrate to our hearts, that we would be changed by it. We thank you, Father, for this that you have embodied uh, this wisdom and righteousness and truth that you've embodied in mere words and yet also in the flesh of your Son. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we covered Christ as our Redeemer. It was Easter. And so it's appropriate that we speak of the resurrection, we speak of Christ as the redeemer of his elect. And he fulfilled that role from before the foundation of the earth, Peter tells us, before the foundation of the world. Our text today refers to Jesus as our ruler. And so we have Christ ruling over us now, and he rules over not only us, not only the church, but over all the created order. And so that means he rules over everything on this earth and he rules over everything in heaven. We forget sometimes that the created order is everything on heaven, in heaven and on earth. It's not just us, it's angels, principalities, powers. It's everything that we see and that we don't see. And now before either of these things, before he was our redeemer, before he became our ruler, he also was our creator. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So, Jesus is our creator, he is our redeemer, he is our ruler, and he rules not only over us, he rules over the entire universe, and thus the name of this sermon, Master of the Universe, that's Jesus. Now, I did not come up with that title, and you might be surprised who I pulled that from, J.I. Packer. I have a book by J.I. Packer that I love called Concise Theology, and he has a 
a chapter, these little two to three page chapters on 94 different topics in the church. If you don't have this book, I really recommend it. It's very, very handy. And so in his chapter on session, which is entitled session, now sessio is an, a Latin word from which uh, we get our term for our church government here in the Presbyterian church, and it means sitting. And so Jesus is said to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now Jesus isn't sitting to rest. He's sitting to rule. He's in the seat of authority. And so he sits at the right hand of God the Father ruling. Now when we meet for session, we sit too. And we're probably sitting more than ruling because we, we like to sit, we need to sit, we're old. But so we take that term on and we are guided by it, we are instructed by it. It, is, uh, it defines the church government. And so in the prior chapter though, prior to session, what is that prior chapter? Ascension. Jesus ascended to rule. And he rules in session now from the right hand of the Father. And in that chapter on ascension, G.I. Packer is hinting at what is coming because he ascends to this position of power. And it says, the fact that Jesus Christ is enthroned as master of the universe should be of enormous encouragement to all believers. And it is. Now, Paul's prayer and what I read included a substantial prayer of Paul and we will expound upon that in this message. But his prayer begins with a prayer that, he, that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of the understanding of these Ephesians. Now he already acknowledged, and I was tempted to read the first portion, but it's already been a long service and I wanted to cut that out. But he already emphasized the fact that he's writing to the believers in Ephesus. Yet, in writing to these believers, he is praying to the Holy Spirit that their eyes would be opened, that the eyes of their understanding would be opened. And what that tells us is that we can often, even though we're believers, have our eyes closed, have our understanding, the understanding of the eyes of our heart closed to the meaning of Scripture, to the joy that we really ought to experience when we are opening Scripture up so our eyes can grow dim to that reality. And so Paul prays that their eyes would be opened as I prayed that your eyes would be opened, as I prayed earlier in the week that my eyes would be opened. So now he prays for three things for these Ephesians. He prays that, and I'll get to the specific three things, but those are in verses 18 and 19. He prays for three things, and then he goes on to emphasize four actions that the Father has taken in elevating Christ to this position of authority. So we're going to go over those three things that he prays for for the Ephesians and those four things that God the Father does for Christ. So what are these three things? These three things are in 18 and 19. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling that you may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. So those are the three things that he's praying that they will know, and that's what we'll talk about now. Now, Paul, when he is referring to this calling, he says that you may know what is the hope of his calling. When he uses this term calling, he's talking about that effectual 
call by which he drew these Ephesians that believe into the kingdom of God. This is the call that is irresistible. This is the call that upends many people's lives, and yet it is a glorious thing. And so this is the call that he's emphasizing. Now I want to point out to you that what it is is it's his call. Often you'll read in Scripture about your call, but this is God's call. This is his call of you. It's not your experience of it. It's his call of you. Later in Ephesians 2, in verses 12 and 13, we read this. At that time, he's referring back to before the Ephesians became believers. At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's reminding them later that they were lost, but now they are found, and they are found by this call, and in that hope, in that call, they have hope. That call of them brought hope to their lives. God's call imputes value to your life that nothing else can give you. Many of you may have been sad to hear about Robin Williams killing himself a few months ago. I was as sad. I know, he's a, I know he's a flaming liberal, but he's still very funny, and I liked him. He seemed like a very nice person. And so I was sad when I heard about that, and he did kill himself. He hung himself. I don't know if you know the details, but yet no one expected it. I don't know that he left a note or anything, but he just disappeared. His wife left in the morning. His assistant came, became worried, came and found him in a bedroom. He had hung himself. Why? Why, why, why? would a man who had his skill, his wealth, kill himself? There's really only one reason why people kill themselves, right? They have nothing to live for. That's how they perceive it. When someone kills themselves, they no longer want to live because they value nothing that would come tomorrow or next week or next year. So he didn't value that. The year before he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's and perhaps that was partly playing into what he was thinking. Who knows? Who knows what people think? But see, this is the picture of a person without hope. Yet what Paul is reminding these Ephesians of is that in the calling of God, is hope. It imputes value to your life that you may not understand, that you may not experience day to day, like all of us. All of us might not experience that value we have in life day to day, but it's there. God has given it to you. God has imputed that value to you. You might not know what value you're bringing to God, but yet you persist in life because of that. That's the reason you live. That's the reason we all live, is to bring glory to God, is to live for God, not ourselves. And then the second thing that he prays for is this, that you may know what is the hope of his calling 
that you may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Again, his, his, his. If you look at verses 18, it says that you may know what is the hope of his calling, his inheritance in the saints, and then looking ahead, his power towards us. All of these are emphasizing God, the Father's role in your life. And Paul is praying that we would recognize that this is all of God. It is not of us. Paul's prayer is that they would recognize the great riches that they have in Christ. The riches of his inheritance. I want to turn to Acts. And uh, Paul is speaking before King Agrippa. And he says this. He's, he's telling to him exactly what Jesus had told him on the road to Damascus. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus promised Saul at that initial shocking uh, image, vision of him on the road to Damascus, that he was giving him an inheritance, that he gives all of those that have faith in him an inheritance. Jesus, in Matthew 13, tells several parables, and a couple of them were concerning the kingdom of heaven. He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure buried in a field and he hurries off, sells all that he owns such that he can go purchase that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes off to purchase and he finds a pearl that is beautiful and perfect. He comes back, he sells everything he owns so that he can go purchase that perfect pearl. That's how much these people in the parables valued the kingdom of God. They wanted to give up all that they had in order to gain it. Yet, the kingdom of God cannot be purchased. It can only be received as a gift from God. So the question is this then. Do we appreciate the gift of God, this inheritance that He's given us, that is incomparable? Do we value that more than everything else that we have. Because, see, we can't purchase the kingdom of heaven. It is a gift. But can we learn to appreciate that gift? That's exactly what Paul is pleading with these Ephesians to do. Appreciate what you have been given. You have been given exceeding great riches. You should appreciate that. And then the third prayer that he has in verse 19, that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now, I've mentioned this before, but adjectives, especially strong adjectives, are not all that common in Scripture. And as an example, it is surprising to me when you read Genesis 1, to see that God describes each day of creation as good. He looked upon what he had created, and it was good. Six times, it was good, it was good, it was good. 
And then at the end, at the last verse in chapter 1, we read, wait for it, it was very good. Now, if my wife labored long, difficult hours on something, and I said that was good, I don't think she would be pleased with me. Good. It was very good. Oh, very good. Oh, you're getting better, but you're not there yet. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves. This is true of all of us. Now, we don't want to covet praise. We don't want to live for that. We don't want to be unhappy if we don't get it. But when we know we've done good work, when we know we've poured our heart out and it shows, praise is something that we appreciate. And the reason I say all that is that in verse 19, this is not God speaking of his own work. This is Paul speaking of God's work. So perhaps that's why we can see and accept that there are these greater adjectives used. But Paul says this, that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Two big, strong adjectives there. This is rare in Scripture. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. The exceeding greatness of God's power towards us was manifested in the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ to sit at the right hand of God in heaven was prophesied about all through the Old Testament. It was something that the Jews looked forward to with great anticipation. They didn't yet fully understand what it entailed that the kingdom would not be initially this earthly kingdom, that it would be him conquering sin and evil. Yet, it is that power that is reflected in Christ being raised to sit at the right hand of God and rule over all of the universe that is at work in us. And that's what we'll go on to talk about. It is toward us. Now, there are four things that God does in honoring Christ, four actions that he takes. They're in verses 20 through 22. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly place. He placed him far above all principalities and powers. So he's seated him at the right hand of authority, and he's also placed everything else under his subjection. And, in verse 22, he gave him to be head over all things to the church. And so let's talk about those one at a time. He raised him from the dead. Now, resurrection is amazing. We just talked about it last week. And so if you like to read the Bible, I like to read the Bible, and I think the things that uh, can impress me and amaze me most are the resurrections. Uh, Elijah did it. Elisha did it. Jesus did it several times, and perhaps even more than we have recorded in Scripture. God did it. When the dead body was thrown into the grave in the Old Testament, boom, he sprang to life because he hit the bones of that prophet of God. And then in the New Testament, when the veil is torn 
when Christ dies, all these bodies came to life. All these bodies came into the city. All these dead people came out of their graves. And it was a proof of what had miraculously occurred. Resurrection just upends everything that we understand about this world. And God does it for a purpose. He does it when he wants to make a point. And he was making a point that day. The day that Christ died, he was making a point. So now, we know, though, from last week, that the resurrection of Christ is special. This was a resurrection like none other that had ever occurred because he was resurrected to eternal life. He was in the flesh, yet he was in immortal flesh. There was continuity in that he could tell Doubting Thomas to reach forth his finger into the spear mark, into the nail marks, but yet there was discontinuity in that he could walk through walls. He could just disappear whenever he wanted to. We don't understand what happened. We don't understand what this new body is entirely going to be like, but it is a physical body that has special properties relative to the physical world that would appear to render it impervious to damage and death, which is great. No more stubbing your toe, right? All this pain that these guys are experiencing from all the work they did yesterday on that ramp, that will be a thing of the past. You will be in a physical body, yet you will not experience pain and the detriment of having that physical body wear out. The second action that God did that day is that he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly place. He, great, he raised Christ up to this position of power and authority at his right hand. And he essentially made him his grand vizier. He imparted all authority and power, just as Pharaoh did with Joseph in, in Egypt. He has all this power vested in him now. And the Father placed that there because Jesus had triumphed, triumphed over death. All the prophecies of the Old Testament that uh, were leading up to that day were all fulfilled in that action. He is seated on his throne. He is ruling. He is in that seat of authority. And so then the third point in verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but all in that, also in that which is to come. So now this speaks to the fact that all, all power in this known universe is Christ's. It's Christ's to wield. And he allows all other parties to retain power only at his pleasure. He can and does remove people based on his own desires. Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, speaks of the power of God in this regard. In verse 15, he says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. He lifts up the isles as a very little thing. So see, the nations of the earth do not compare to the power that Christ wields. They are his to command. They are his to rule. They think they're powerful, but they're not. And then move on to verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth 
useless. Psalm 2. This is a wonderful psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. Now it's Jesus speaking. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And this is what the Jews wanted. Yet they killed him. Isn't it remarkable that they were staring at the very embodiment of the power that they wanted, but they wanted it wielded on their earthly enemies, not on the sin that ravaged their own heart. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Jesus will never, never, ever on this earth be mocked or jeered at or scourged again. He has risen beyond that. He endured that. He humbled himself and endured that. And yet he is now beyond that. You don't have Jesus to kick around anymore. But... He did leave his body behind, his church. And that is partly our purpose. Colossians 1 is very clear in that, that the church is here to endure suffering on behalf of Christ. So the fourth action of the Father is that he gave him to be head over all things. And this is in Ephesians 1 verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So now, a head requires a body, or it's not very useful. We are Christ's body. We are being put to use by the head on this earth while we remain on it. And we are, of course, a small piece of that body. Paul speaks about the body in terms of us being the body and not arguing with one another. But what we can forget is that though we might argue with one another about who's the hand, who's the eye, there is no argument over who's the head. Jesus is the head. The Catholics have it wrong. The Catholics say that the Pope is the head of the church on earth. No, that's not so. Christ is the head of the church in heaven and on earth. So now, the Father honors Christ here in this unique way. And let me read that again. God, the Father, put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God honors Jesus by now drawing attention to 
his bride. So that's flattering for a man to have his bride become the subject of the, top, the topic here. To the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God regards his church with such great respect with such great tenderness and affection that it may be surprising to us, somewhat shocking to us, because we Christians often don't value the church at all, at all. Yet Christ died for the church. The church is described as his bride, who a husband has great pride in, great love for. But see, we don't see this when we look at ourselves even, or one another. We find ourselves wanting, wanting quite a lot. We're very critical of the church. We tend to focus on all the negatives. And I want to give you a picture that I don't think you'll soon forget of how sometimes we think of the church. And I didn't tell my wife this, so. I... Years ago, I had a car, it was an 88 Grand Marquis. When I bought it, it looked halfway decent. It didn't really have much rust showing, but it seemed like the day I bought it, rust started manifesting itself. And uh, I'm not skilled at working on pretty much anything other than texts. And so I tried one day, to, I bought a tool and I'm trying to get the rust off this thing. And then I smear some type of rust resistant stuff on it. So this car looked really, really hideous. And yet I drove it, so who cared? But periodically, for whatever reason, my wife would have to drive it. And she really didn't like driving that car. Now, these big old 88 marquees tend to be driven. If you see a woman driving one of these cars, you might see a woman such as this. Some big, overweight, bleached blonde woman puffing on a cigarette, getting out of that car, yelling at her kids who are kind of trailing along behind her in and out of stores. I mean, I, I don't say that to, 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 to you know, really criticize that woman, but I'm just saying, I, I've seen it over and over and over again. It's not, it's not a stereotype that is not based in part on truth. That's why Tabitha didn't want to be seen in that car, because she knows herself what type of women tend to roll out of those cars that look like that. And, and after she told me that, I began to see, yes, she's right. And so then I felt really bad anytime I had to have her drive that car, and we got rid of it. <laughs> now, that is how we tend to view the church, brassy loud, unworthy of respect. Why would we respect this? How does God? How does God view the church? I believe God views the church as she will one day be chaste, demure, respectful, obedient, excited, hopeful, looking forward to the marriage, looking forward to the ceremony, like any bride would. 
So see, I want you to keep those two pictures of the church in mind. God does not see the church as she is, but as she one day will be. And when you criticize the church, you're not only criticizing yourself, you're not only criticizing many others that you know and love and respect, you're criticizing Christ's bride. You are a part of that, and you ought to look to the future just as God does to see what it is that the church will one day be like. Be very, very cautious in criticizing the church. So Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know, and by know, we mean embrace fully to the heart, have it affect your intellect, your will, your passions, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? All power is Christ to command. He is, as was said earlier, the master of the universe. John 14, 12 says, Jesus is speaking, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That's what Jesus told us. So simply, he told us. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. And then James, James 4, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. You ask because you want to spend it on your lusts. So see, it is a fairly simple relationship that we're in with God right now. Christ is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he will do whatever we ask him. But yet that asking has to come from motives that are motivated by the purity of his word, motivated for the pure motives of his church and its rule on this earth. Now I wanna bring up one last point that isn't in our text right here, but it came out as I studied it. There is a puzzling passage regarding this reality of Christ being at God's right hand. In Psalm 110, where it is initially prophesied that Christ would rise and sit at the Father's right hand, it speaks of him as coming and sitting. And here in our text, it speaks of Jesus being seated. Yet in Acts 7, we read this. This is in Acts 7, starting at verse 55. This is speaking of Stephen. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So see, twice in what I've just read you, what Stephen saw and then what he told everyone he saw, Jesus was standing. He was not sitting. And so... Why? Why would there be a difference as to where Christ is, what he's doing, and how Stephen perceives him? Well, some people even go so far, and Calvin in his commentary speaks to this, rebuking people for making much of this. But he doesn't really go on to say what I thought he would say, and I'm going to say it. I believe, Calvin of course didn't believe this is a textual discrepancy as some people were accusing the Bible of it, but I have a theory 
And let me first take you back to 1 Samuel. During the time of the judges, Eli is judge. His wicked sons are running roughshod over the people. They are sacrilegious sons. They're horrible sons. And yet Eli refused to rebuke them after many, many of these such incidents where they are committing sacrilege. And a man of God is sent to Levi, and he says this, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Eli had dishonored God. God then took the honor of Eli away. He took the priesthood away from Levi. And this is my theory. This is why I said this. Why is Jesus standing when, or why is uh, Jesus standing when Stephen sees him in that vision, when he's standing there witnessing to the people? Because Jesus knows something that Stephen doesn't. He's about to die. As soon as he said, as soon as he told everyone what he saw, if you remember the text, it's very graphic. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And this is where they laid their clothing at Saul's feet. See, they still did not have the power over life and death. That's why they'd taken Christ to Pilate because they did not have that authority to execute people in their land. They had to go to the Romans for that. But here, they were so angry at Stephen that they just went out and killed him right then on the spot. They were not going to wait on this. So Jesus knows Stephen is about to die for being such a bold witness to these Jews that crucified Christ. And so Christ grants Stephen this vision of him standing there. Now, why is he standing? I believe it's two reasons. He is honoring Stephen, and he's waiting to welcome him. So, I encourage you, I implore you, To recognize that you are Christ, that you live in a privileged position of wealth on this earth right now, the riches of God at your command. So I implore you to stand up for Jesus on this earth so that one day, as with Stephen, Christ will stand up to welcome you into his arms. Oh, Father, we thank you so much, Father. Your love is mysterious to us. How can you love us? We who are so forgetful and so focused on our own petty lives to not realize the depth of your love for us, the scope of the plan that you have for your people. 
Father, we just want to live quiet lives without great burdens placed upon us, and too often that is how we choose to live. Yet we pray, Lord, that you would awaken us to lives of obedience, lives of sacrifice, lives of selflessness and service. We pray, Lord, please uh, open our eyes to what you would have us to do to serve more completely, more fully, more sacrificially in your kingdom. Uh, we are your servants, Lord. You have given us hope, hope for not only living quiet, peaceful lives, but hope in changing this world for you, in drawing honor to Christ while we're here and have our breath. So we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your kindness, and we pray that you would be with us, that in the week ahead, we would seek opportunity to grow in our knowledge of you, in our love for you, and in our passion for you. We thank you, Father, for your power and for your greatness. We thank you for the fact that Christ is at your right hand, ruling over all dominions, and we want to be a part of this, Father. So we pray, please guide us and uh, give us a vision for this earth that is unique to what you would have us to do and to be. We want to please you in all that we do. And we pray, Father, please have your Holy Spirit to make this so. Thank you now. In Christ's name we pray and for his sake and the building up of his kingdom. Amen.